Our freedom of conscience and religion is being challenged by laws and regulations imposed by secular society. It's time to hear from the top Christian litigators in the nation who have come forward to tell us the truth and help us defend our faith. Hear ye, hear ye. All rise. Faith on Trial with Defender of the Faith, Deacon Mike Mano is in session. Welcome to Faith on Trial, where we examine the influence of law and society and people of faith. I'm Deacon Mike Mano, your host, and sitting in for Gina today is our old friend Lisa Bourne. Lisa, how are you? I am fine. Good. I'm glad you could make it here. Uh, Gina, unfortunately, had a death in the family, and so she's out for the week. So we appreciate you coming in and joining us. And I have to say again, as I've said before, you're the one that started me in this stuff. <laughs> you you were working for the diocese at the time, and you called me to come in to host or co-host a, a show with the bishop uh, on something that I had just written about for the Catholic newspaper here, The Mirror. And, uh, and that's what started this whole ball rolling. So our listeners have you to blame if they don't like the show. <laughs> well, that's that's. I guess we can um, categorize that under no good deed goes unpunished. That's right, something like that, <laughs> something like that. And, of course, I see you almost every week at the Latin Mass uh, documenting it in photographs and that. And uh, you do a very good job. we got a calendar out, the Latin Mass. Thank you calendar. so much. It's very nice. It's, it's, very it's nice. a joy to be there. It's a joy to document it. I'm honored to be asked and thrilled to uh, to do that. And I can hear you behind me when you're in the chapel doing things. I can hear the click, 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 <laughs> right, because I sit right there. Right. Is where I sit in choir. Yeah, yeah. So yep, I, I do my best to be like a little church mouse and be uh, uh, seen and heard as little as possible. Well, um to the extent that I can. Well, we appreciate it because now we have this photographic record of what we're doing over there. You know, I started over at St. Anthony's when Monsignor Chido was still um, in his, I guess, full health uh, and uh, and was doing that. And he asked me to come over. And so I drive over there on Sunday nights uh, to do it. And then it, I had the stroke and couldn't do it anymore. And then it moved to our parish. Uh, St. Augustine, and I said, well, let me give it a try again. And so I don't have to do very much now. I don't have to read anything. Just I only have a couple of phrases that I have to memorize as I distribute communion and give out blessings. So, But anyway, it's uh, very nice. I don't know if you heard uh, some time ago we had on the FBI whistleblower who talked about the Latin Mass and the investigating of the Latin Mass. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, we, had wow. we had that, yeah. Yeah. It's really great to see you at the Mass, whether at St. Anthony or at St. Augustine. thank you very much. Uh, Knowing you outside of that and knowing you there as well is a blessing. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. We've got an interesting show today. We're going to talk to Robert Muse, who is from the uh, American Freedom Law Center. There is a screwy bill going through the the, uh, Michigan legislature (laughs) that will uh, uh, make it so that if you hurt somebody's feelings, that you can go to jail. That's a nice term that you use to yeah. to uh, qualify that screwy. Yeah, so. it is. It is, and we have. A, and I think I sent you a copy of the bill and a copy of one of the uh, news uh, reports about it. So mm-hmm. we'll talk to Robert. We'll get to the main story there, and then Jonathan Butcher, who is from the Heritage Foundation, he's going to talk about some of the SCOTUS rulings that affect education, and he's he's the education expert there. So we're going to talk to him about all things education, whatever he wants to talk about. You know, we always have on these folks from the Heritage Foundation. We, Gina and I have said this before. We we don't go a month without having somebody from the Heritage Foundation on because there's right. so many people there that know really what they're talking about. And there's so many people out here in the news media that have no idea <laughs> of what it is they're talking about. So They are a great resource. Yeah, they are a wonderful resource. So anyway, do you have a prayer to open us up with today? I absolutely do. It's great to be with you, and we will give special mention to Gina and her family right. this Ask time. Right, ask people to keep her in, uh, in their prayers. Absolutely. God of peace, bring your peace to our violent world. Peace in the hearts of all men and women, and peace among the nations of the earth. Turn to your way of love those whose hearts and minds are consumed with hatred. Strengthen us in hope and give us the wisdom and courage to work tirelessly for a world where true peace and love reign among the nations and in the hearts of all. Amen. 
Amen. Thank you very much, Lisa. And uh, we're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, we're going to have Robert Muse from the American Freedom Law Center in Michigan with us. You're listening to Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio. And we are back. You're listening to Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio. And uh, we have Lisa Bourne with us today instead of Gina. Thank you for filling in again, Lisa. Appreciate that. And with us on the phone line now is Robert Muse, who is a co-founder of the American Freedom Law Center in Michigan. And uh, Robert, uh, I read the story about this thing that's floating through your legislature, and I got to thinking, this is starting to sound a lot like California. Um, you want to kind of explain what the, the new hate crime bill is supposed to do? Well, uh, great to be with you, uh, Deacon Mike and, and Lisa. Yeah, here at this this last election in Michigan, you know, we had on our ballot uh, proposal three, which is the, which is the most permissive abortion regulation now in this in the country as part of our constitution, and um, it it brought out all the uh, left wing voters, and we got uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer for yet another term, and Dana Nessel, the Attorney General, and they are they are hardcore left wing radicals. And the um, our legislature flipped for 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 the first time in a long time from Republican to Democrat. So they're ramming stuff down our throats. And you mentioned we're like California, we're like California and New York combined. I mean, it's crazy. I don't even recognize the state, you know, that I've lived in for uh, twenty plus years. It was generally uh, conservative uh, for the most part. Certainly, the legislature, the the locals are very uh, very conservative. When it comes to national elections, we tend to get a lot of money gets thrown in with the unions and everything from outside the state that tends to influence the uh, these local elections. But there's there's a very, very strong pockets of uh, conservatism here in, uh, in Michigan. Well, one of the latest uh, ventures of this House, the, uh, the legislature in, here in Michigan, aside from all sorts of gun regulations that they're trying to, to jam through, they have this House bill, it's uh, House Bill number 4, Four seven four, which was a uh, it's a revision of a of an existing law, what was described as the ethnic intimidation law, but they've made this now a, a hate crime law. Now Dana Nessel, our attorney general, when she uh, when she took over, she created this uh, hate crimes unit. You know everything everything's hate crime. Although I don't even know if they've had one prosecution in in however many years because it's it's non-existent, right? They. Just like uh, well, well, a lot of these, these listen, laws. Listen to their uh, their yeah. uh, their arguments. You know, we're all haters. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, or white it's, supremacists. It's it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and there's there's none. I mean, there's it's yeah. not it's not this you know rampant problem. The, the rampant crime, you know, they they turn a blind eye to all this violent crime. They're letting you know go on like we we watch with horror with Black Black Lives Matter and. Antifa, you know, burning down our cities here in here in Michigan as well, and they turn a blind eye to that. But they, uh, you know, they go after this uh, this false notion that there's this all this hatred towards, uh, you know, uh, people of different sexual orientations and gender identity. So they modify this ethnic hate, this ethnic intimidation act to be uh, to to broadly, uh, you know, cover. And they obviously add new categories: sexual orientation, gender identity, or expression. Um, they always have to, you know, clue those in there. That's what this is all about. Now, this, it prohibits, and and there's nothing wrong with this, the use of force or violence against an individual or causing bodily injury to another individual. I mean, we have already have crimes that <clears throat> that prohibit that, but they add in here intimidate another individual, <clears throat> and that's where the problem comes in. Because when you read their definition of intimidation, it's uh, very broadly construed. Um, you know, causing someone to feel terrorized or frightened or, you know, or, or feel some, threatened in some way. Now, th- th- what's very interesting is uh, they add in here, intimidate does not include constitutionally protected activity or conduct that serves a legitimate purpose. Well, certainly constitutionally protected conduct serves a legitimate purpose in and of itself in that it, uh, you know, it, it promotes uh, public debate on issues and it's constitutionally protected for a reason. That's good enough. Now this this bill right now is being I uh, got delayed in the Senate, and there's apparently going to be some rewriting or reworking. So much of these bills are just uh, uh, that the politicians do them to you know appease a certain um, you know voter block or in, you know special interest group. I don't see how this uh, this law would withstand 
you know, current Supreme Court um, decisions. The only the First Amendment has very limited categories of speech that can be proscribed that are carved out. One of them is is uh, is true threats. And true threats, and this is a, a definition right from the Supreme Court, you have to commute a ser- communicate a serious expression of an intent to commit an act of unlawful violence. Right? So it's not just hurting somebody's feelings or making somebody feel upset or, you know, quoting from the Bible that might, uh, you know, offend, uh, you know, somebody of, uh, of a, you know, particular sexual That will send them over the edge, yeah. It would send them over the edge, but that's not, that's, that is not prohibited as a matter of First Amendment. In fact, just this term, the Supreme Court um, issued uh, an opinion on the application of statutes that try to criminalize true threats, and that was that Colorado case. And so not only did they say the First Amendment, um, that the First Amendment requires the, you know, the threat to be, as I described, a serious expression of intent to commit bodily harm, but it also requires the government to prove that a defendant had some subjective understanding that the of the nature of the threat. There had to be some sort of some you know conscious disregard of substantial risk. I think it was almost the language right from the statute. So they even raised the bar the bar even higher to be able to prosecute under a statute that proscribes true threats. And this this statute doesn't even proscribe true threats. It doesn't even make it past the language that they say you know to intimidate somebody or to you know to cause somebody. To be in fear, I mean, you you have to. It has to be more than that, right? There's a there's a reason why the First Amendment is, you know, the First Amendment. It protects off-putting speech. It protects that speech which might offend somebody. And so, I first of all, I don't, I don't, I can't imagine there um, even being a successful prosecution under this. Um, one of the interesting issues will be whether or not somebody can do a pre-enforcement challenge, you know, because the other side will point to the fact that well, look, it has this savings clause. It's not intended to proscribe speech that is constitutionally um, protected. But, in fact, that's exactly what it does. <laughs> so I, I, it's, it's, uh, this, this, I don't know what the Senate's going to do when it's there. I think they're probably looking at this latest Supreme Court decision and looking at this, and, and who knows what, uh, what modifications they, uh, they may make to this. But I would, I would be absolutely shocked if anybody could actually have any success bringing anything under this statute in light of you know, a number of Supreme Court cases, the Virginia versus Black cases, which was the uh, case, which was the true threats case in the Supreme Court, um, dealing with cross burning on somebody's uh, property. And they held the provision of that where it said that just a burning of a cross is of a cross is per se evidence of the of the intent. The Supreme Court, the Supreme Court struck that down. There was this uh, case in 1992, RAV versus City of St. Paul where they had this bias-motivated crime, uh, similar type thing, and causing intimidation, um, and the Supreme Court struck it down. So I, I, I have a hard time seeing this, this uh, statute um, uh, really surviving the light of the day. It, like I said, it, they had that savings provision in there, so it might withstand a pre-enforcement facial challenge, but I'd like to see what set of facts... Um, where it's just speech that this thing could actually be employed constitutionally. I don't think it exists. Like I said, if you want to prohibit somebody from, you know, engaging in acts of violence or property damage, we all agree that's not, you know, that's that that should not be condoned in our society. But to say that somehow just you know mere words can cause these these sorts of uh, harms, that's not going to withstand constitutional uh, scrutiny, in my view. I think the um, intent. Maybe more to chill than to uh, exactly yeah, uh, because I can I can just see as this is is written here they talk about sexual orientation or gender identification or expression uh, I can see that threatening people that if you don't use their right pronoun or the right the pronoun that they choose uh, that could be a violation of this law. Yeah, and you know your point about the chilling effect is um, is is very valid because that would be the basis for doing a pre-enforcement challenge um, to this law, which I'd be you know more than willing to do. You got to have the you know the correct plaintiffs because the right. you know the courts whenever you get these hot button issues, they're, they're one of the first things they do to dismiss a lawsuit. Say, well, you don't have standing. You haven't shown that there's going to be um, you know a, a likely threat of enforcement against you for the conduct that you're complaining of. Um, and so that's that. That's always the tricky part with these pre-enforcements. But you're, the concern about the chilling effect is exactly right. I, you know, I tell people, look, 
don't be chilled. We'll fight this. You know, you just keep going. You keep exercising your First Amendment rights. Um, and uh, these, this, uh, you know, the, the government can't can't do this. Um, can't engage in this type of uh, really chilling effect on your on your free speech. Um, but you know, it, there's it. But it has it has its its purpose, right? And mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's exactly to you know to appease a certain public, uh, you know, a certain interest group, special interest group. And to um, you know, to chill speech—that's kind of like promising no to forgive all student loans. I, yeah. I don't think they ever really yeah, thought they, they would get that through the Supreme Court, but no. uh, it was to yeah. political. It was political. All right, who's promoting all of this? Yeah, well, it's the you know, it's the Democrats in the uh, in the House. Those who are, and you know, Dana Nessel herself, she's uh, you know. She's a openly uh, open lesbian, and she's you know she's all about uh, protecting the rights. That's why she you know, one of the first things she did when she took over as the attorney general is to create this hate crimes unit again to fight this you know this fight this phantom enemy of everybody who's out there engaging in hate crimes. It just doesn't exist. Um, and uh, so she, you know she there's 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 those advocacy groups that are out there behind this. Like I said, I, I don't know if this thing's even going to see the light of day. It's just it's a House bill right now being held up in the Senate because they're apparently going to be doing some rewriting. Um, it's not, it hasn't been passed through both, uh, you know, through the legislature and even made it to the desk yet to the governor. So we'll see if it does. And I, and I think this latest Supreme Court case in that Colorado case, in that Colorado one may actually cause um, some of the uh, legislatures. Now they have a very, very thin majority. The, and, and most people think it's going to be overwhelmingly flip during this next, um, this next election cycle. So there's, you know, you still have your, you have your hardcore left-wing politicians, but you still have kind of your mainstream, middle-of-the-road Democrats who are kind of looking at this going, I'm not sure, this might be a bridge too far for us. So we'll see if it, come, if it ends up making it uh, through. It's getting a lot of publicity, negative publicity. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe uh, maybe those in the Senate are looking twice, you know, look at this and, and thinking twice about, yeah, this isn't such a good idea right now. Yeah, what is the, we'll what is the uh, R&D count in the Senate? Is it close at all? Uh, it's very close. I, okay. I think it's only one or two. As okay. Well. Yeah. Okay. It's, it, we we lost we lost the majorities in the House and the Senate by the thinnest of margins. I, I think it's only just a couple of votes. So it's um, so some of these bills, and they're going to pay for some of these bills, especially like the gun, the, uh, the the gun control legislations and things that they're trying to put in these you know red flag laws and everything mm-hmm. else. Those are going to those are going to be on the voters' minds when it comes around for this uh, this next election, and I think they know it. And that's one of the reasons why they're actually trying to push some of this stuff through, because they know it's, it's not going to be long-lived. Okay. In addition to the chilling, um, I'm wondering if they are maybe just throw, throwing at the wall what they can and seeing what sticks. I, I, you know, I'm just speculating there. And you mentioned that it's back for revision with um, the Senate. I'm wondering if, you know, looking, as you mentioned, Robert, those, those Supreme Court cases – if they're looking at bolstering it to see what they can get through, you also mentioned uh, a gun law that's mentioned in this law as well. If if you violate it in any way in possession of a firearm, it looks like they're just trying to get away with what they can. And and I don't know, you know, I mean, obviously you're there on the ground. You you have a better sense of things there. Yeah, they're they're flooding the zone, as it were, mm-hmm. <laughs> for, with all those types of legislation. This is just more of the same from this. Um, you know, from this administration, both on the legislative side and on the on the uh, in the governor's office and in the attorney general's office, so I do think they're, you know, they're 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 quite bold, you know, and and uh, they're but they're you know they're showing their true colors, you know, when you step out into the light, and um, you know we'll just get, we're just going to keep fighting fighting them at every chance uh, every chance we can, and you know we we need to stay we need to start taking some bold actions ourselves. Right? I always hate being on the defensive, right? I like to be on the offensive. It'd be nice that when the Republicans uh, take over, they actually do something, right? And uh, even, even like when you mentioned the, you know, President Biden with this, uh, this loan forgiveness um, Fiasco, you know, executive yeah. order, which they even, I mean, they knew, I mean, Pelosi, right? You had Roberts even quoted from Pelosi. They knew that this was, this was just a, a political game. And now they can blame, you know, they can blame the, conservative, you know, appointed justices for, for why, you know, we're not paying off your kids, uh, your kids' student loans. But, the, you know, the Republicans got to get out there and be banging the drum and just say, look, this is, they, they, made, they made false promises to you. They lied to you. 
Right? We got to start turning this, you know, ex- exposing them for what they really are. These people are liars. It's not that the, the conservatives took anything away. Nancy Pelosi even noted that this was wrong. They were lying to you to buy your vote, and they were thinking that you were that stupid that you would just vote for them because they're going to give them to you. They they have such little regard for you, and that they will lie to your face, make you these promises just to buy your vote when they full well knew that this was not a uh, this. They didn't have the authority to do this. We got to start, you know, telling them, telling the American people what this really is, and expose it for what it really is, right? And that's that's what this is too. This is just this is just trying to promote a political agenda, use the weaponize the law to uh, to silence uh, people with conservative views, and that's all this. And yeah. you know, this uh, intimidation, hate crimes law is that's all it is. It's, it's intimidation, See. and you know, this idea about hate speech is the other thing too. There's no no such thing as hate speech. In terms of under the Constitution, right? There's no, there's there's very limited categories of speech that can be um, that can be prohibited or prescribed in some manner. Fighting words uh, is is one that's a very very narrow category. Incitement, a very very narrow category, and uh, and true threats as well as you know libel is is one of the examples, and obscenities even some where they can place some modifications on it. But there is no. There is no exception under the First Amendment for a so-called hate speech. This idea that you know hate speech isn't protected. Well, hate speech isn't even a category that's a, that exempted uh, exempted out, and you know for good reason. Right? Why is it hate speech? Because because it offends you, or because I disagree with what your view is. Um, and so that's I don't I don't see this law uh, actually being applied in any way. Just like I said, you know they created this hate crimes unit, but it doesn't prosecute anybody because there are no hate crimes. They create this. You know, this phantom fear out there that there's all this, you know, all these white supremacists running around looking to, uh, you know, engage in violence against people because of their, you know, sexual orientation or, or you know, race or whatever. Yeah. It's all about trying to divide, right? Because that's what we know. The great, the great, you know, the father of lies and the father of division is Satan, and that's, that's what's behind all this. Yeah. I hear uh, every once in a while on the news uh, the name of your governor coming up as a possible candidate for president. Um, is she making any moves or doing anything? Well, it's interesting. She's been hiding out. <laughs> she's pulling a Joe Biden, right? She's she's kind of going to during COVID. She was all front and center, front and center. That didn't go well, and she realized it didn't go well. And uh, I don't, I don't even see her or hear. I don't see her on TV. I don't hear her on the radio. But so, but I, my guess is that she's she's kind of um, jockeying for position, right? Because it's a little bit. It's an interesting position that the Democrats are in right now because you have the the uh, you know the president right now the who would be you know the incumbent is of their party and so they're they're trying to walk that tight line between uh yeah this you know he's he shouldn't be doing he shouldn't be running for another term and I should be the one so I think she's keeping her powder dry but everything I'm hearing like on the radio and stuff people are who are talking about this are in the know in terms of you know fundraising and that sort of thing. It, it's my guess is that she's probably building up, you know, trying to build us inside of a, some uh, a war chest of some sort and and getting, uh, you know, getting the political uh, powers aligned, as it were. But she's keeping her powder dry and, and hasn't officially announced. But her name and and news and, uh, you know, Governor Newsom are the two that that are um, that I hear quite up, often. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, but she, publicly, I think she's she's staying she's staying in her basement like Biden. Yeah. She, uh, I think, uh, escaped the last election, I think, had that uh, former uh, police chief from um, Detroit been allowed on the ballot. Uh, that would have been yeah, a— James Craig. Yeah, a different race, a different race. Yeah, there, there were a couple other candidates, and, um, you know, it was really—it was kind of a lot of funny business that went on there, because our Secretary of State is another one of these left-wing radicals. And, uh, you know, we, we saw the debacle that happened here in the election in 2020 um, with uh, with President Trump and and uh, the counting of the votes and, you know, the shutting down the machines and the last minute dumping of ballots in the Detroit in Detroit. It was, you know, it was crazy what went on. But uh, both uh, James Craig and, uh, and uh, the other candidate's name escapes me. But they were some of the two of the top front runners and they submitted their signatures and after the deadline for the signatures, they find out that uh, apparently a company or a couple of the companies that they hired to do the canvassing to collect the signatures were um, had uh, had problems in the past, uh, unknown to them. The Secretary of State knew about it, 
and a large number of the signatures they submitted were invalidated. And there was no time to get new signatures, and so they didn't make it on the ballot. Um, yeah, that's too bad. The election politics is crazy. Yeah, 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 it's it's unbelievable. And you're right, it's election politics. Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, We got to change those things. You have a website. uh, If people want to find out a little bit more, it's, uh, I think, AmericanFreedomLawCenter.org. Is that correct? Exactly. That is correct. And people can find out what you are doing there. And uh, you are one of these pro bono firms so that the people you represent um, get that representation, I guess, free. Exactly. Yeah, we're a, we're a nonprofit public interest law firm, so we're a 501c3, which uh, means we have to rely on generous donations because uh, we don't charge our clients for the work, and we do a lot of, a lot of pro-life work, um, especially representing the Red Rose Rescuers and, and others. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we don't charge our clients uh, a penny, so we have to rely on the uh, generosity of others who want to support our work. And so if anybody has any loose change and they want to do something with it, besides, yeah. <laughs> besides giving it to Iowa Catholic Radio, which is also important, so we stay on the air, but if they, they want no, exactly. to split some of that, um, uh, we ought to have a, a, an agreement with you where we get 10% of what you take in from our audience, <laughs> but uh, we'll let you have it all. But it would be a good a good place to, uh, to stick some uh, lose change because they do good work up there, and and it's not just in Michigan. You're all over. I've seen uh, your we cases yes, uh, in yes. uh, other states and before the Supreme Court. So you are very active up there. Yep. Well, yeah, Robert, yeah, it w- across, the, uh, across the country, it was nice yeah. to have you back. We haven't had you on in a while, and uh, we will uh, not try and go so long again this time. But we appreciate your time. And again, that's AmericanFreedomLawCenter.org. We certainly appreciate your time. And uh, appreciate your work. God bless you and what you're doing. And we will talk to you again. Very good. Thank you. Thank Mike you. And uh, we're going to take a short break right now. We will be right back after these messages. You're listening to Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio. And we are back. You're listening to Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio. I'm Deacon Mike Mantle, and I'm here with Lisa Bourne, who's sitting in for Gina Knoll this week. And right now on our news line, we have Jonathan Butcher, who is an expert in education with the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Jonathan, welcome to the program. I don't think we've had you on before. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, yeah. And well, we'll have you back again. Let's talk about education. The Supreme Court has uh, come down with a couple of things recently about education. What do you uh, What do you take from all of that? Well, two really big decisions last week, of course, one dealing with uh, the use of racial preferences in college admissions, and it was the ruling, the majority opinion, extended Brown versus Board of Education, and they, they said so in their opinion, that this is really about getting rid of discrimination everywhere. And a powerful ruling, I think, especially the, the history lesson that was provided by Justice Thomas in his uh, concurring opinion, uh, I thought were, were very strong. And then you know, the other opinion was uh, essentially revoking President Biden's extreme overreach in his attempt to shift the cost of student loans onto um, taxpayers, which is he called it student loan forgiveness, but it was really just transferring the cost to, to taxpayers. If I had to say, you know, the, the uniting feature here is that you have two cases that were uh, really reinforcing the Constitution, which, of course, is the role of the Supreme Court. And I think it was it was a refreshing pair of rulings. Yeah, it's a, it is a role of the court, but not according to the media. If you listen to it, you know, they, they were way off track on both these things. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the student loan forgiveness thing, uh, because, uh, uh, well, mainly because you brought it up last and it's still in my mind, but uh, the student loans... Um, there is a big problem these days in uh, in the cost of higher education for people who want to go. Yet we're seeing colleges and universities sitting with these enormous uh, endowments, and uh, they are very um, hesitant to use any of those endowments. It looks like what what is the state uh, these days of uh, of uh, financing? Uh, higher education for people? Well, there are a few things going on. One is that under the Obama administration, the federal government essentially assumed 
the role of being the primary lender for students. And so now upwards of 90 plus percent of student loans are underwritten by the federal government. And that's really not the appropriate role for Washington to have. And so that's that's the first problem we've got is that Washington has an outsized role in lending money to students. The second is that um, when it comes to federal, you know, this federal spending on colleges, either through loan programs or otherwise, uh, it has been shown through re- research by the Federal Reserve, among others, that when the amount of money that goes from Washington to colleges tuition increases, okay? So as we see Washington continue to play a large role in the student loan program, colleges have no incentive to reduce their tuition. There are very few schools that advertise that they keep their tuition prices down, one of which was actually Purdue um, under um, Mitch Daniels for for several years. Uh, They did were able to, to freeze their tuition costs. But other colleges have not. And so you have this really unhealthy dynamic between Washington essentially promising that the money's going to be there and colleges saying, well, if that's the case, we can kind of put tuition wherever we want it. Um, and so I, I think what's, what's happening now, right, is now that we have this ruling from the Supreme Court, what we are going to see is the Biden administration is going to try to still use some sort of regulations to make it um, uh, less expensive or essentially phase out repayments. And, and it's called an income-driven repayment scheme, effectively. As, as the cost of education seems to be going up and the public perception of this seems to be, what are we paying for? That, at least that's what I get out of it. Uh, is there a thought among educators that maybe we're going on the wrong track? Maybe we ought to be um, encouraging more vocational and trade education? Yes, and this is kind of where the K-12 experience and the higher ed experience meet, right? I think that there has um, for too long been the assumption among K-12 educators that that college is the destination that every student should head towards. And uh, that's the wrong that's the wrong path for some students. Uh, no, we should not be encouraging every child to go to college, not because uh, they are not capable, but because they may have an interest in something in the workforce that doesn't require a four-year bachelor's degree, right? Students can, um, you know, finish high school, enter, you know, trade school or study to be an electrician, um, a plumbing. Uh, you know, there are a number of technical skills that students can um, can gain from two-year colleges um, or trade schools that would allow them to have, you know, very uh, lucrative jobs, lucrative careers when they graduate. Um, I mean, I, I think that anyone um, who owns a home knows, you know, how expensive it is to have someone come and do repairs, especially in, in some pretty technical things. Uh, electrician is one. And so I think that the um, uh, this idea that every student should go to college is sending some kids down a path where they will enter college, realize it's not for them, and that they would rather be in the workforce, and then they, you know, may not finish, and they'll have substantial debt when they leave, right. and that's the kind of uh, kind of problem that this sort of pipeline to college sets up for many students. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's turn our attention now to the racial preferences uh, case. Uh, this involved Harvard, and I guess it was the University of, uh, is it North Carolina or South Carolina? I think it was North, North Carolina, Carolina. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and this had to do uh, initially with um, the problem with uh, Asian applicants for Harvard. Uh, I remember writing a column in The Wanderer a couple of years ago about some of these preferences and how they came about and the, uh, the idea that uh, if a person applied as an Asian, they had a 20% chance of admission. If they applied as a black person, they had a 70% chance. You're familiar, I'm sure, with all those arguments. Why don't you... Uh, um, uh, kind of bring us up to date on all of that, because I know a lot of people out there uh, are concerned that now we're turning off the, the the floodgates for college to all the minority students, and I don't think that's what happened. 
No, not at all. I mean, we have to remember that this case was brought because Harvard was actively discriminating against Asian American students who were applying to their school. And they were actually uh, making it more difficult for Asian American students to enter because of their race. Right. I mean, this wasn't an ability thing. This was a, a an act of racial discrimination, and that's what the court ruled. Um, by doing so, the court also said, look, it is uh, against the Constitution. It is uh, contrary to our civil rights laws to give an individual additional preferences based on their race. And students should be judged on their merit, and uh, they should be judged on their choices and their decisions, not on their skin color. And um, I think what's important to remember is, you know, not only this very important, I think, legal principle that the court reaffirmed, but also that we had examples of bans on racial preferences before. For example, in California, there was a period after the passage of Proposition 209 where they banned racial preferences in public hiring and in colleges. And uh, what we saw was actually that students were better matched with schools where they entered, right? Um, You know, if you have a student who is coming from a non-competitive K-12 school and yet is given a racial preference and admitted into a very selective higher education institution, those students are more likely to struggle with their grades, struggle to keep up, their confidence is crushed, they do not perform well, and that affects their later job prospects. And we also saw this in law schools as well. And so this mismatch theory is, has been uh, tested and proven in research uh, time and time again across both law schools as well as STEM programs in uh, higher education. And so racial preferences have actually not been helping the students that they purport to be giving advantages to. Yeah, and I think that match idea is is a good one because I know of a lot of people that have started, uh, uh, they've gotten into a, a, a very a prestigious school, they go there for a year or two, and they're not hacking it because, as you say, they, they don't match ma- well with uh, uh, with the student body and uh, or the faculty and so they end up dropping out, not getting the degree, and incurring a lot of debt in doing so because a lot of these people are borrowing and their parents are borrowing to get them into school. Whereas if they would go to a, a, a local college or something like that where the, the pressure was a little bit less, they do very well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think what we're seeing is not so much that the you know the very high-achieving top of their class, black students, Hispanic students, um, Asian American students, I mean, they're going to be successful wherever they go, right? And if they apply to a school with scores that are at the top of their class at a rigorous K-12 school, they are going to be successful. It's the next tier down, right? Mm -hmm. It's the students who did well but were not at a competitive school, or it's the students who um, simply didn't have the background, the academic background, to compete at a place like an Ivy League school, which, you know, those tended to be the schools that are, you know, most famous for using racial preferences. Mm -hmm. Um, By better matching students to, say, uh, an HBCU, for example, or a state school and um, allowing those, you know, putting those students in a place where they can compete and where they can keep up with the rigor, that makes, uh, sets it up so those students uh, do perform well. And then they do have a better chance at both the job market as well as graduate school if that's where they choose to go. Yeah, and it seems to be that the uh, educational institution or the institution the institutional educators, I guess is a better way to put it, uh, seem to be frowning on some of these things. They're the, the schools that are, as you described, that are, that are higher quality uh, K through 12 are being kind of dumbed down. And I'm thinking of, is it the Jefferson School in the Virginia that was the best high school in the, or, or listed anyways, the best high school in the uh, United States? And they're starting to dumb that down now. And I think uh, in New York, is it Stuyvesant School that they have in New York that, again, was a strictly um, a meritocracy to get into that? And, again, there's kind of dumbing that down. What, what are we doing now with that? 
Yes, I mean, I, we see this at the K-12 level, and especially during COVID. I mean, there were school districts that were doing away with letter grading, for example, yeah. uh, during COVID, which, you know, you can say for maybe a period of time that uh, given the, frankly, mediocre um, uh, quality of what assigned schools gave students during COVID that perhaps it was best for the, you know, for them to not keep track. But the idea that 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 is a long-term solution is a, is a terrible one. Um, the case in Virginia, as well as up at Stuyvesant, that, um, you know, we should um, either not not be telling students when they're National Merit Scholars or something like that is, is just flat wrong. I mean, we should be celebrating success and celebrating achievement and helping to encourage students, right, to pursue that. Now, by the same token, for the students that need help, for the students who are struggling, well, that's why we need more uh, school choice options for these young people, right? I mean, that's why you have states around the country where lawmakers are, you know, adopting education savings accounts so that students can pay for uh, either personal tutors or go to a private school, including many Catholic schools that have been successful for generations, right? Um, you know, these this and is they didn't, why and they didn't close. In a lot of places, right. as Catholic schools and private schools stayed open, and you can see the results now. You're absolutely right. I mean, the NAEP scores, the nation's report card demonstrates that, that the scores of students in private schools in, in particular were much stronger. And I, you're exactly, and I, your numbers about Catholic schools uh, are right. I, I believe I saw a number as high as 90%, I think, of Catholic schools that reopened or either stayed open or opened sooner than their local uh, assigned school counterparts. I mean, it was um, just a, a really strong performance from the private sector at a time when American communities really needed them, and uh, I think I, I think that Americans now today, um, as we see the continued problems and low performance coming out of assigned schools, recognize that at a time when they needed them, you know, when Americans needed um, assigned public schools to be there to help, uh, that they uh, simply didn't couldn't live up to what they were being asked to do, and uh, I think that's why families are more interested in private education today. Lisa? Well, I guess I'm just wondering, The you'd mentioned that the racial preferences was a little more prevalent, at least with the, the Ivy League schools. How, how prevalent is has that been across the board? And how has that been allowed to go on as long as it has, if it's in fact been unconstitutional? Yeah, that's a terrific question. So Ivy League schools are, are kind of the high profile examples, but they're definitely not the only ones. Mm-hmm. There have been colleges around the country. Um, a quick example for you, of course, was uh, I mentioned California already. But even after Prop 209 passed in California, the some of the schools, UCLA in particular, tried to get around the ban on racial preferences. And I think that's what we are going to see happen next. After this ruling, I anticipate that we are going to see colleges and universities try to get around this ban on racial preferences and still use race. Perhaps even they're going to try to use it as a, as a determining factor, which will result in more lawsuits, I would expect. Um, I think what we saw from the Biden administration right after the ruling, they sent a, a page of talking points and guidance to colleges about what to do after this ruling, effectively, you know, saying that they disagreed with the ruling. And here are ways that, you know, without using the word race, they were saying, here's how you can still use race as a factor. Um, So, you know, I think that this ruling was very important, uh, both, you know, philosophically as well as practically. Um, But I, you know, I think we do have to be uh, vigilant. Mm -hmm. And for those colleges that we believe are still using race as a determining factor. I think we have to be prepared to uh, make them be more transparent about their admissions processes and hold them accountable for uh, what they're, what factors they're using. And I think uh, the people who are really lost in the shuffle here were these Asian applicants. Uh, as I read uh, some of the briefs involved in this, uh, in this case and some of the original complaints that were filed, it does seem like the Asians were getting the short stick. Uh, they were being classified as white, which, of course, uh, as you know, uh, is suspect already if you're white, uh, and uh, and just uh, totally blocked out of uh, of the scholarships and and of the uh, admissions in these schools for apparently no apparent reason other than that they, they were Asian and uh, that didn't comport, comport with 
what the schools thought was best for their uh, their student population. Yes, and this isn't the first time. Uh, Asian American students had filed um, for lawsuits back in the 1980s. They had complained about this as well. And, you know, if you go back even further in Harvard's past, there was a period of time in the 20s where they were discriminating against Jewish students as well. So, you know, this is something that has been used, you know, it's been used for a, for a long time. Um, I think uh, you're you're correct to, to remind people that the, the point of this lawsuit or what brought this lawsuit was that Harvard was saying they, they were essentially taking away points from Asian-American applicants as something, I think they called it the personality profile, yes. or the personality index part of the, the admissions Very subjective. Um, process. Yes, that's right. That's right. And, you know, it's, it's not, you know, not only is it not fair for these students, but it's also, um, it, it harkens back to the just deep-seated problems with identity politics and in the different census categories. I mean, when you say Asian American student, I mean, my goodness, are you talking about South Asian? Are you talking about East Asian? Are you, I mean, you're talking about nations that have, you know, very different um, you know, lineages from each other and, and, and traditions and, you know, as well as, as uh, um, you know, family histories and everything. So uh, the, the, sen- the census categories themselves have, have pretty serious problems. Yeah, we had somebody on a couple of weeks ago talked about that, that maybe we ought to get rid of all these categories. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that's right. There was a, a really terrific book by a professor named David Bernstein recently um, talking about, you know, how he, some certain nations are categorized as Asian when they're really European and, um, and vice versa and things like that. So there's, there's definitely some arbitrariness in how these lines are drawn. Sure. I'm filling out an uh, application here. So what do you want me to be? <laughs> I'll just check the yes. correct boxes and, <laughs> and that'll help me out. Yeah. All right, Jonathan, want to thank you for joining us today. Certainly appreciate your time. Uh, People can follow you if they go to the Heritage's website, which uh, I believe is heritage.org. That's correct. And, uh, and, and and there's always a wealth of information on the Heritage website. And as uh, we pointed out before in this program, we don't go that long without having somebody from the Heritage Foundation here to keep us on the straight and narrow. But we certainly appreciate your time today and what you're doing. And uh, God bless you and your work. And thank you for coming up. We'll have you back. Thank you. Certainly. We, uh, we appreciate you. Uh, Jonathan Butcher, who is a senior research fellow in education with the Heritage Foundation. And Lisa and I are going to take another break right now. We will be back in just a couple of minutes. In the meantime, you're listening to Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio. And we're back. You're listening to Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio. Uh, Lisa, again, thank you for sitting in with us today. But uh, we had an interesting Oh, my word. Lots, lots going on. <laughs> Interesting program today. So what do you want to talk about first? Well, I'm hopeful that based on what Robert said, that that Michigan law won't have legs, but we also know better than to assume that it won't. Right. Um, I loved his his uh, passion and his eloquence and his willingness to fight. So uh, knowing that there's folks like him on the ground there, um, is encouraging. Yeah, and, and one of the reasons why I always suggest that people with their spare change help fund these people is because they're the ones out there that are fighting for us. Now, of course, I got to say in the same breath, send your money and I with Catholic Radio too, <laughs> because you won't hear it. I mean, how many right. places have you heard this? You know, it comes up here, and sometimes we're the only voice out there talking about these things that are really uh, a danger to your to your uh, faith, mm-hmm. you know, and what they're doing. And this concept of a hate crime, mm-hmm. uh, which that can mean anything. And it can mean whatever the person who's uh, who's writing the law wants it to mean. Absolutely. And, We've gotten far away from reality to where people are defining things uh, so subjectively that that it doesn't make any sense anymore. I don't like what you say, so I'm going to call it hate speech. And, call- and hate speech, from what he said, is just not even a thing. And I'm entitled to my facts. You're entitled to yours. And, and well, we're entitled to one set of facts, the true facts. Mm. And, of course, nothing shows uh, any more than uh, the argument over gender identity now, mm-hmm. that you can change on a dime. I want to be a girl today and shower with the girls in their locker room, so... You know, call me Michelle, not Mike. And uh, some of these schools out there saying, okay, and we're not going to tell your parents you're doing this either. 
it's all very disturbing and and not the least of which is the imposition on the folks that are not uh, on board with it mm-hmm. to to go along with speech the compelled speech having to say that someone is something that they are not right in addition to the violation of of our, our children and like with. robert says this is demonic this is demonic also interesting discussion with jonathan today mm. about schools we don't we don't spend I mean, we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about education on the program, but when we do, we get a gem here. Right. And uh, he was very good with that and what is going on in education today. And we got to pay more attention to that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, that Supreme Court ruling apparently upholding the Constitution, like he said, a breath of fresh air, um, very encouraging. But as he pointed out, they're going to work around it. Absolutely. They're going to try and work around the, the it. The vigilance is necessary That's on right. all our parts. That's right. So you win in the court and you go away and you find out you lost in public opinion because the media is on their side uh, or you lost through some loophole or some conniving person being able to figure out a way around the court ruling. So, yeah, we have to we have to be vigilant. We Still have to work ahead. Yeah, work ahead. Well, it's about out of time right now, so let's end with our Defender's Prayer. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Thank you again, Lisa, for joining us today. Thank you to our guests and listeners. And don't forget that next Saturday, July 15th, is the Celebrate Country Concert with Walker Hayes uh, at the Community Choice Center. And you can get all the information on that from our website, iowacatholicradio.com, where you can also find podcasts of all of our old programs. So if you miss anything, you can look it up there. Thank you very much again. Thank you, Lisa, for coming. Until next time, have a blessed and peaceful week. Our freedom of conscience and religion is being challenged by laws and regulations imposed by secular society. Faith on Trial with Defender of the Faith, Deacon Mike Mano. Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio, iowacatholicradio.com, and the Iowa Catholic Radio app.